Tom Maxwell, thanks a million for the time today. Really excited about doing this with you. Uh, so the first one of this series, a bit of a biggie, but we'll kick it on with the best. Uh, I know you haven't been interviewed on your own podcast yet, so here we go. How are you getting on? Yeah, good, thanks. It's the first. It's your, it's your first uh, hosting episode and my first time being a guest on it, so I'm actually really excited. No better man. <laughs> thanks for real so in london i know the sun is shining there as well as it is here how are you getting on over there yeah really good thanks this is the third lockdown and i'm actually enjoying this lockdown the most to be honest it's been really good uh thanks to your inspiration and a couple of training plans you've given me i'm, I'm uh, doing uh, better on the fitness front um working away i moved back to sales from management which was an interesting thing which we'll probably chat about at some point yeah and yeah just happy out to be honest so what is a day-to-day -day looking like for you right now in lockdown number three? Day-to-day -day is very fluid at the moment because of sales. That's, that's what I love. Um, so like there's no real fixed schedule. I tend to get up at around half five in the morning, which I, I just like the mornings. And oh, nice. do a bit of uh, writing, bit of reading, bit of a workout. I'm obsessed with a TV show at the moment called This Is Us. So I'm watching an episode of that every morning, which is ridiculous, between seven and eight. And yeah, I just love kind of getting into the day slowly with the morning and that sort of thing, rather than waking up late and kind of being on the back foot. So uh, yeah. once nine o'clock comes around, my work schedule with Fivetran then is very uh, fluid. It changes every day. It used to be all meetings all day in management, mostly pretty much 90% internal meetings. And I am known for not liking internal meetings at all. So I left management largely for that reason. There were several others that we'll get into. And now I have my own time back and yeah, much more flexible in the day again, which is great. Awesome. Um, yeah, the, the management piece, I was really interested in that, like and probably something worth talking about because it's not something I know anyone personally uh, has taken that quote unquote step back from. But I uh, would love to hear a little bit more about that decision and how you went about it and what led to it. Yeah, it, it, it was a huge thing for me, to be honest. Um, I, like I'm 29 now, if I kind of flash back to when I was 22, working in Macquarie Bank in Sydney, uh, there was a guy I was friends with who at that stage was 31. He was our top trader. He was like the kind of the Ronaldo of our team. And um, I always, I never understood that he didn't want to move up. He didn't care what his title was or anything like that. He just yeah. wanted to trade and go home at four to his wife and his friends and stuff. And I never yeah. got that. I actually never, I couldn't just fit it into my head that, that was all he ever wanted and that he didn't want to be the CEO or have titles or any of this sort of thing. Yeah. And then like fast forward probably five or what was it? Five, yeah, five years to two years ago. And I was working in Fivetran and working with different uh, companies. And there were some sales reps in those companies that were like in their forties. And I would look at them and think, God, I'd hate to be a sales rep in uh, my forties. But then now that I've, I don't know, the goalposts, I guess, have changed. I'm always banging on about the goalposts changing. And little that I know that uh, during that time, they were changing for me. And so I kind of did the last year as the country manager of, of the UK and Ireland for Fivetran, which is a really cool title, but I didn't enjoy it. And like the only enjoyment that I was actually getting from it was essentially the title, if I'm really honest. And so I just missed the dopamine of doing deals and that sort of thing. I missed having, like, if you're a manager, you're, you're going to get your OTE, your on-target earnings pretty much, but you're never really going to earn much more than that. And I didn't want to give up the upside on earnings quite yet. As a sales rep, it's kind of like almost unlimited sort of. Um, yeah. And yeah, like yeah. It, was, it was just kind of a quality of life, maybe 
30 is on the horizon and I was thinking, hang on, now that I think back to that trader, Luke, and he was really onto something. Like he was able to do so much more outside of work while probably making more than a lot of CEOs and just doing it entirely on his own terms. So what I've realized is that it wasn't that he wasn't ambitious like I had previously thought, it's that he was ambitious on many different levels and he needed to give work or his, his full-time job its place within that and not allow it to be everything within that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it does. It's a really interesting one because I think, you know, we're all kind of geared towards, oh, I want to be a manager and I kind of without understanding what that really means, which is people management and there's all the ins and outs that go with that and me working in HR I definitely probably appreciate that more than others and it's definitely not a skill set a lot of people have in the first place or then want to develop on the once they ultimately understand what it means so I mean fair play for understanding what it means and saying you know actually this isn't for me and taking the step back um I think it's a really really interesting story yeah um, how you how you finally going back to this house I'm loving being back at the sale. I was going to say, before I made the decision, I actually called up Luke, who I've kept in touch with. And I was chatting to him about it, and uh, he said something in classic him terms. He said, uh, yeah, it's around your age now that you, that you should be making that decision. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, everyone in their 20s aims for something. And I'm going to use his exact words. They're not mine. Because everyone in their 20s aims for a destination. And when they get there, they realize that it's a book of the shit. And they have to start again. So booking the shit seems to be his thing. But I was just like, do you know what? I had this was I was like everyone else. Management was the true north. And then you get there and it's like, do you know what? I'm actually gonna go back off. I'm gonna go off the kind of uh tried and tested course or the, the path everyone kind of is on and just go against the grain of it, follow my gut. And yeah, to answer your question, since being back to sales, I'm absolutely like friends and family have said there's a noted difference in my mood, my energy levels. Um, and I'm just so much more happy, to be honest. It's brilliant. That's great. That's great. Well done. Uh, big decision. Well, I'm glad to hear it's, it's paying off for you. Um, picked up on you're doing a bit of writing in the in the morning time. Is that a journal or is that a story or what do you what do you yeah, the, the journaling has always been there since um since the heart attack, which is now ten years and one month ago. Um, Journaling got me through that for sure, because I was never expressive. I would never talk about my feelings to anyone. And I needed to get them out somehow how after the heart attack. So I started doing tons of journaling and that fed into writing a blog, that fed into writing poetry, short stories, books. So at the moment I'm writing uh, a couple of short stories, one in particular, and uh, then just doing, yeah, like stock standard journaling and uh, kind of processing things, which is really good. I've actually gotten into meditation a lot recently. So I'm doing a ton, like I did an hour and a half of that last night, uh, oh, which yeah, right? I could never do before. I used to do 10 minutes max, whereas now I've just found this rhythm where I can regularly do half an hour, pretty much maybe five nights a week. And then every now and then if I need it, uh, I'll just sit down for ages. And, and I'll jump, when I say an hour and a half, I'll jump between meditation where you're kind of like half out of it sort of thing where you get really into it. And then other times you're just there and you're fully conscious and you're thinking about stuff and you're maybe even get up and write some of it down. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the main activity in the mornings for sure. Okay. Uh, and I know we touched on your heart attack there, which is something I, I want to speak about uh, in a sec, but it sounds like there's loads of really, really good habits going on. Uh, I know they're important for me as well on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's a couple of things that if I don't do them, 
the day for me is just kind of a bit skew-wise and I can't really feel like I'm in my groove and I can't get the most out of it by doing a couple of bits but do you have anything like that meditation or journaling or anything else that you feel I have to get this done or I cannot get the most out of the day or do you do you even operate like that for my insane yeah, no I actually don't I used to operate like that for sure where I'd have like your anchors or whether it was a workout or a journal or thing. like I used to be religious about journaling and I wouldn't miss it for the world kind of thing but I actually don't have that these days I don't know what it is but yeah I, I tend to be pretty kind of easy on myself like I a lot of time I don't actually set an alarm to be honest I'm gonna say that it's rare that I do set an alarm and I'll just go to bed early and wake up around half five six sometimes earlier kind of thing um and yeah I actually I'm actually quite easy on myself on that front I kind of feel that um if you're in it for the long run, you kind of need to have as little friction as possible. And I sometimes look at setting an alarm as like a form of cruelty to yourself. If you need to sleep, take the sleep. And if you find yourself sleeping past work, then clearly you need that sleep, but you also need to go to bed earlier. And you kind of let your body just find its natural rhythm. So that like on the sleep front and with a couple of those different things, if I feel like I need to journal and I really know I'm quite sensitive to when I do need it, um working out i'm actually getting much more disciplined on now again which is great and yeah i actually i don't have any rules to be honest now that i think about it it's totally flexible i'd say all of the all of the productivity gurus would i'd drive them nuts but it works for me to be honest and i'm it, i'm very very happy which is the main thing great and you say now uh, you're in your absolute flow state by the sound of it yeah yeah it's nice uh, like i don't I, if, if something was broken i'd put a routine or something there but so yeah. Yeah, at the moment it's it's all working well okay okay and last question with today today um you, you, you said you're getting back into the fitness there what is mark maxwell's fitness regime looking at i imagine punishing could be one word uh this is interesting actually and this is the type of thing that you and i would talk about anyway just as friends but one thing i realized recently i don't literally realized this four days ago is that my exercising before the heart attack like would be categorized as an exercise disorder like it really was out of control during seven hours a day that like i don't know how it's taken me 10 years to appreciate that it was disorderly but it yeah. truly was and so for uh, for people listening give us a little bit of insight into what mark maxwell 10 years ago was doing to have an exercise disorder yeah so that guy did have an alarm <laughs> he had probably quarter seven alarm every day and he could up to a bunch of hill sprints um for pretty much an hour down near the school i was working in and this is at 18 and then come up, have like a monster breakfast of like six eggs and about 12 Weedabix or 10 Weedabix kind of thing. Like bear in mind, I was tipping 120 kilograms. So I was pretty large. Um, yeah. And then do an upper body session, go have lunch, lower body session. And then I do a core session in the evening. And then if I didn't go out, I'd go out about three or four nights a week. If I didn't go out, I'd set an alarm at two in the morning and do a workout for half an hour, have a protein shake, go back to bed. That last one came because I heard David Polcock did that. And I was like, if he's doing it, there's no excuse for me not to do it. So, um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it was very much a disorder. And like the, the school yeah. I was working in was a big rugby school in Sydney and the, the equipment was unbelievable. And a couple of the teachers there were actually ex-rugby league professionals. And two of them pulled me aside. One of them had to do it twice and said, look, we're actually pretty worried about your exercise regime. We think you're overdoing it, all this sort of stuff. And yeah like it clearly was just a disorder in hindsight so the reason i bring that up is that 
nowadays when I tell my family, oh, I'm back into working out or I'm doing runs or whatever, they're like, just take it easy. Call your heart doctor. Calm down. You don't need to do much. Just like they get so kind of worried about it. So I, I, I did 10K this morning just as a run. I'm doing a lot of these house workouts now, which is really, I'll probably never join the gym again, to be honest. Um, and yeah, just doing right. like house workouts and runs pretty much. That's it. Good. Uh, it's good to hear you're enjoying it again and not killing yourself just yet. Yeah, literally. <laughs> so maybe you're touching the heart attack a couple of times there. And I know it's obviously been a major factor in your life and things going forward. But um, I've heard the story from you a couple of times now, but would love to refresh my memory uh, and give people listening a bit of insight as to what went on and how it happened. Yeah, for sure. So I, at that point, I was 18. I was hoping to um, play sport professionally. And the, the deal I made with myself when I was about 10 was that if that wasn't going to happen, it wasn't going to be because I didn't do my part. So that, I, was only, I was only responsible for my end and doing as much training and practice and stuff as I could. So I went down to Sydney and worked in this school as part of this exchange program that my school had. And just trained the house down. Like, and I, I, it was unbelievable. It was so much fun. Like, I was a total training junkie. I'm very extreme in everything I do, which is why I like sales as well. Like, all it all, it would just fit in me perfectly. And even though it was a disorder, I was still kind of very kind of happy doing it, I guess. And um, yeah, we I did, did that routine that I outlined before for about six months. And then, and like, was just the fittest and fastest I'd ever been. And I was looking forward to the new rugby season. And then we were traveling myself and a couple of guys from school were traveling in New Zealand together. And at the back of the bus, I fell asleep and the guy went blue and I couldn't, like my body was folding over essentially. Uh, and I couldn't breathe. So the guys noticed that, called for the bus driver to stop the bus. It was actually his first day driving that tour bus around, the poor fella. And uh, the lads carried me off. They still give me shit about how heavy I was. But they carried me off. They gave me CPR. Then there was a German nurse on board and she took over and gave me like better CPR. And then an ambulance arrived, gave me six shocks of an external defibrillator. Uh, they didn't really work. They put me into an ambulance, decided to give me six more. And they did work. So drove me to the hospital in Auckland in New Zealand and uh, put me into a coma. I was in a coma for a week. And... Uh, for the first three days of that, it was looking pretty positive that I wasn't going to come out of it, that I was done. So it was really kind of, yeah, it was, it was, I was like, I'm extremely, extremely lucky to have come out of that. And then my parents flew down. So woke up from the coma. They were there. Like I had mild brain damage because of all the shock. So I actually went two months without much of a short term memory at all. And I learned Spanish to get that back. Cause in my world of resistance training, that just made sense to me that like, a, a curl for your biceps was like doing vocab for your short-term memory just resistance training and it turns out that's actually a proven kind of theory so that worked and I got a short-term memory back within about two months um I, I always say there's a couple of different layers to the recovery so it was kind of like the physical recovery that took a year so I couldn't exercise pretty much for a year because your heart was shut off and so you really need to, it's, it's a very slow computer that takes a long time to reboot so you had to give it a year with pretty much no exercise, like a couple of walks, that's it. Um, and so can, I, can I jump in there? Yeah. Um, so you say you've had this massive heart attack and the look of God, you're alive and thank God you're still with us. But you, you wake up in the hospital in Auckland. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Yeah, the first thing. So I don't remember probably three days before or after it, but the story goes 
that yeah. the first thing, like I would wake up a couple of times and never remember having woken up before. So I'd wake up and I'd be like, yeah. where the hell am I? And one of the guys who was watching me or my parents, whoever was in the room, was they did a rotation of the five of them. They'd have to be like, uh, you had a heart attack and you're in hospital in New Zealand. And I'd be like, oh, Jesus. And then I'd go back to sleep and I'd wake up and I'd be like, where am I? And someone else or the same person would have to explain it. And like, they had to tell me, like, I think my friend Dermot had to tell me like 10 times I wasn't able to play rugby again. And all 10 times I cried. Dude, I keep forgetting. I kept forgetting time and time again. Um, but yeah, it was pretty mad. And you're listening to, to make light of a, a very serious situation. So, if you ever seen Kill Bill, was it volume two? And Uma Therma is in uh, is in a coma as well. And she, she, I think she's trying to get out of the bed, and just her legs don't work. I don't know how long she's been in the coma for. And face plants onto the floor. Is, is there's any truth in that? Did you? How were your legs, your body as a whole, after such a traumatic experience? Uh, <laughs> the, I was wheelchaired around to be honest for a couple of days that was actually great like the amount of attention I got after was just lovely like everyone like my aunt came down she bought me a Chiefs jersey because I was obsessed with Chiefs like it was all whatever Mark wanted to do it was great um, my legs I can't remember anything wrong with my legs but I do, I do remember the morning I walked out of the hospital with my dad so I was able to walk that's a good thing I remember my left arm because they put the pacemaker in and so I wasn't able to move my left arm for like a week basically um which was mad and i stayed in this hotel in auckland and the english lads who i lived with came to visit they changed a new zealand trip to come and visit and i was up on like floor 15 or something and i stood i, I said all these stuff all these like chocolates or sweets and jerseys and all this sort of stuff and i just waited for them with a box of chocolates out on the like it, it was an atrium shaped hotel and um i waited overlooking the lobby with a box of chocolates in my hand, waiting for the lads to come in. I was such a little shit in hindsight. And I just started launching all these chocolates at them when they walked in the door. Yeah, I remember it was uh, it was all with my right arm because I wasn't able to move my left arm. That's actually I don't know how that comes to mind, but yeah, that was uh, that was the kind of carry on for a couple of weeks. Then they flew me back home. Um, yeah. and yeah, I just kind of had to get used to like it was the, going back to the recovery thing. The, the emotional recovery took, I'd say, nine months, where it just comes back and freaks you out every now and then that you're gonna die again because you have a sudden death syndrome. And you know, I just turned nineteen two weeks after the heart attack, so I was kind of like unable to process that. You know, you actually are able to recover from something like this. And I remember my aunt was like, "Well, what are you gonna do now?" Uh, she asked me in my kitchen. And I said, I don't know, but does it really matter? Like, I'm going to die pretty soon. And she was like, whoa, this fucking guy needs help. Like, I, I didn't know he was that damaged from it. And so, yeah, like getting to grips with A, what I thought was true, that I was going to die at like 23. And then trying to balance that off. Like, but hang on, I can't. Yeah. You had, you had in your head, like, after this, this heart attack, that it's just going to happen again. And I'm going to drop. Yeah, because like... You're 18 and, you've, and someone yeah. tells you you've got sudden death syndrome that you've already died. Like that's, I don't know, like in hindsight, you're kind of like, okay, I think I can rationalize this a bit more. But at that point, I wasn't able to. And yeah. so, yeah, I always just thought I was going to die really young. And then, I don't know, I kind of got to grips at the age of like 23 that, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily, or maybe 22, that I wasn't necessarily going to die imminently. And so <laughs> I uh, toned down the kind of like partying and stuff. I actually got really into health and was like, well, let's make sure I don't die. And, got pretty into health and started doing fitness again and that sort of thing. Um, 
and yeah, started kind of planning for the future with investment bank and all that sort of jazz. So yeah, that was, I, I, there's, there's one part of the recovery that's really important. So that was all the emotional stuff. The psychological thing, I didn't even know that was a factor. I, I, when I used to tell the story, I used to say there are two parts of recovery, um, emotional and physical. But then six years after the incident in 2017, I had a shock from my defibrillator. And I'd had three or four previously, which all scared the crap out of me and always made me think I was going to die there and then. But this one happened when I was running in the basement gym of a friend's apartment block in Sydney and I was on my own. So sorry to cut across you. So that when you're getting shocked by that, that's your heart has stopped and it's getting you going again. Uh, or the or no, the heart is flying out of control. So with this example here, my yeah. heart went 261 beats per minute. Oh uh, my god! Yeah. So <laughs> it's nuts. And then when people people used to say to me, when you get shocked, it's like being kicked in the chest by a horse. I'd never been kicked by a ch- in the chest by a horse. So like I was like, right, whatever that means. But I can actually, I have my own way of describing it. For anyone who grew up in the country, if you ever touched a cattle fence that was on an electric fence, it was yeah. kind of like te- uh, touching an electric pea. Like it was an electric bolt the size of a pea. If you pick yeah. now an electric bolt the size of a tennis ball coming from within your chest, yeah. that's what it's like. And so the first two times it happened were in, in Fiji and then Australia. And both times there, I thought it was an earthquake. So that kind of gives you an idea of how much it screws with your with all sort of um but yeah i got that shock in the gym and i ended up with ptsd where i was having panic attacks and nightmares pretty much every day for uh, about seven months i'd say of 2017 and then i was really convinced i was going to die so i actually wrote down all the things i wanted to do before i died and i just did them all in 2017 so um i quit my job in google i wrote a book i started a business and i went traveling south america so that was like yeah, like the whole story is about, it's a, it's a good example of like pot, what looked like negatives actually totally being blessings in disguise, I guess. Yeah, that's definitely a great skill here as I know when you Maxwell, that you have the ability to take something that might be perceived as not a great situation and spin it around to your uh, extremely strong advantage there. The only um, skill I have, I needed one. <laughs> <laughs> in your repertoire but uh listen thanks so much for sharing that and i know it's uh it's obviously been a life-changing experience but um i know you've 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 uh you've made the most of it to say the least but you were in auckland and uh you mentioned macquarie there and google so i know that was sydney that you were there and um, so how'd you find yourself in sydney in the, in the first place yeah, so I uh, was in Sydney doing the exchange program, and that put me in Joey's, which is a great school down in Sydney. Um, and yeah, you do loads of volunteering stuff with parents and that sort of thing. And I met one parent who was an investment banker, and uh, he was a really cool guy. And to, like, I'd be lying if I said I didn't. Know, I knew he was an investment banker, and I knew that uh, he had helped people out getting jobs and stuff before. So um, kind of got on pretty well with him and kept in touch with him. And then when it came time to getting a job, I did an internship in EY. Uh, in my last summer of doing commerce in UCD, really didn't like EY. <laughs> there was one day when they gave me work at a quarter to five on a Friday, and I was like, yes, sir, yeah, no problem. And then I went and ran down the fire stairs <laughs> to get out of there. I just didn't want to do the work. So like, when that happens, you're in the wrong business for sure. Um, and so when I realized I didn't want to do that, I, and that was another example of a decision where everyone was calling me stupid and nuts for not taking a job going into final year college. I did all the final year without a job lined up. And everyone right. was saying I was stupid for turning down EY. But started getting in touch with that dad again. And I was like, look, I'm going into final, I'm in final year here. And don't really have anything teed up. 
do you have anything in Macquarie or anyone you can introduce me to that I can try to get a job off? And uh, he was like, I can send you to Singapore and to New York a week each on your two week, uh, what's it called, Easter vacation. And that's all I can do for you. If you can hook yourself up with a job there, you're done, good man. If you can't, like, that's it. So I went to Singapore, met those lads and they said, the FX team, and they said, uh, we, they said on the Wednesday, we've got no job for you. And thankfully, I was going out every night that week anyway, as you would in Singapore at the age of 22. So um, I went out one night with a young guy I was staying with. And he was like, oh, there's a couple of lads from the energy team. So I went over to them. And I was like, do you have any jobs for me? The FX team told me today that they don't. And so um, they were like, well, there's a job in Sydney, but it's for someone with two years experience. And I was like, give me the guy's email address and I'll see if I can, you know, basically get my way into it and got the email address off uh, this guy, Chris, who's a really nice guy and got my brother to write the email because he already worked in the energy business. And then, yeah, did in New York, I actually really remember doing interviews with uh, that team while I was in New York the next week. So it was all nuts. And then in my final year, the week of doing my final exams, I was doing my final interviews um with Macquarie and all that sort of stuff was it was that was easily the most intense week of my life so yeah yeah it all worked out and a week after I was uh, a week after my final exam I was in London for three weeks with Macquarie then Singapore in a hotel for six weeks which was unbelievable and then then my visa was finally ready and I went down and moved to Sydney so that's how I wound up back in Sydney the second time Amazing, amazing. And I know I spent a small bit of time in Sydney when I was working in Melbourne. I was over yeah. there with Fonda and Coke and unbelievable city. God, it was such an experience and would really love to go back. And Absolutely class. If it wasn't for the PTSD, there's a chance I would, like, I really felt at home there. I always say yeah. my biggest achievement in life so far, and I still say this, has been uh, the life that I kind of built in Sydney. Like, my friends there are still very close friends and that sort of thing. And yeah, I was really proud of the life I built in Sydney, but unfortunately, PTSD really just rattled me in 2017, so I needed to come home. Probably need to go, yeah, yeah. Um, I know when I was making the decision to go down, I was like, I didn't really have any connections down there. I was like, how am I going to get a role? And God, I know all my friends who, who went down kind of experienced the same anxiety and uh, feelings, and ultimately it worked out fine um for, for all of us and got good jobs and had a great time yeah, you had a great time there there yeah yeah and the best and but uh i was going to ask you would you have any advice for people listening to how would you get a job how, how, how to get a job that you're interested in and not just one that's you know a bit of a filler role uh in australia in melbourne sydney wherever well, getting a job, I kind of have to break that up into two or maybe even three. So one, find a job you're interested in. That's the hard part. That's why I started Grad Life, because I found that really, really hard to do. Yeah. So talking to people who are in that role, listening to any Grad Life episode that covers it, like that, that stuff is really important to find what you're actually going to be good at. Then number two, finding a job full stop. If you're just applying for grad programs, you're really not stacking the odds in your favor. You need to do creative applications, in my opinion. And you're in HR, so you know better. But I know yeah. that my brother got his job by writing an email to 20 different email, the same email to 20 different email addresses that might have been the CEO's uh, email. So the CEO's name was Ivan Glazenberg. He's this like $10 billion net worth guy who runs an oil trading firm. And 
Rob just emailed iglazenberg at glencore.com, ig, i.g, ivan.g, ivan.glazen, like it's in every variation. And uh, an email, yeah, it was unbelievable. Like really, yeah. And then he really inspired me as he has in several different ways. When I came back, when I was in Colombia, I was like, okay, I didn't die this year. So I need to go into 2018 with something. And I started looking at venture capital in London. And one of the top firms was hiring. And I knew that they wouldn't hire me because I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge and all that sort of stuff. And so I was like, how can I even just get in the room with them? And so what I did was I went online and got the email address of everyone on the team. It was like an eight or nine person team and put all those email addresses and email as a two. As a subject, I said, can index ventures crack the case? And then in the body, I just put a, a riddle with no answer. This was on a Monday. Then on Tuesday, I gave a new, I gave Monday's answer with Tuesday's riddle. Wednesday, Tuesday's answer with Wednesday's riddle. Did that all week. And then the following Monday, I did a reply all to all those emails. And I said, uh, folks, I hope you really enjoyed my creative application and you gave you a bit of fun on the inside. I know no one else was that creative or courageous in applying. And I hope these are two traits you're looking for in an associate or whatever. And I didn't get the job, but the CTO wrote back and said, Mark, that was a really cool application. Whenever you're in London, let me know. Um, so it achieved step one of getting their attention. I just ended up not being the right person for that job, but it's yeah. getting the attention that can be really hard. And so I definitely, another friend of mine, she does, a friend of ours, Rachel Brown, she's been on the podcast. She does yeah. um, handwritten letters, which is a great touch as well. Yes. So you yes. have to yes. be creative and, and take ownership with this stuff and not just fire your CV in among the thousands and hope you get lucky kind of thing. I, I, that, I don't believe in that at all. Yeah, oh, I can completely say attest to that. I remember I was working in a, a small pharma here at the time. I was loving the whole pharma experience, but I also obviously wanted to get, get some something more in, in Australia and just got on LinkedIn and started just Google search big pharma uh, in Melbourne, ideally a manufacturing site because I thought that would be really cool. And anyway, managed to get on to the director of HR for Pfizer, uh, for ANZ. I was like, hey, look, like, I'm going to be in Melbourne on this date. Here's my CV. I work in HR. I'd absolutely love to work for you. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Ended up getting the call with the HR manager in there who was really senior. Did, I think, five rounds of interviews for a role I didn't even know existed. It was not on their website. And uh, just worked out really well. There was a gap and uh, they let me fill it and things went extremely well from there. But it is that kind of thing of just totally. banging, banging on the door and you know doing that little bit extra or something different and it does work it's just a bit of a bit of a tenacity to do it but well done i love that that rhythm thing is brilliant you learn and grow a lot from doing it as well you learn about your own kind of insecurities or you're kind of like oh jesus i don't want to do this and then if you ask yourself like why don't i want to do this what am i afraid of here there's so much growth in asking those questions and going through that and you won't get that growth unless you try to clear a fence that you've never cleared before yeah, exactly. And like, even speaking from the HR perspective, like, you know, when I'm recruiting for a role and there's, oh, you get so many CVs nowadays, you get 150 CVs are decent. And you're trying to like, okay, how, how can I separate this out? But you know, if you, sometimes people will just add me on LinkedIn and be like, hey, I'm really interested in that role. And even if they're not 100% a fit, their name stands out of the pile. Um, and that can make the difference. And, you know, you get the job you really want or you don't. Yeah. Uh, exactly. 
but yeah, that, that was, that's all for us. Well done. Um, tell me, working culture in Australia, thoughts? I find it hard to comment because I, or maybe I'm actually in well positioned to comment. So I, I had an investment bank and then Google, which were kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, investment bank was very uh, kind of uh, direct communication was easily the MO there, which I actually really liked and really kind of bought into too. So then when I went to tech, I was easily the most direct communicator in the room and still am. And that's not, I say that's not always a good thing to be honest. So like that, that's one huge thing I noticed. Um, but I don't know what have been your observations. Like I wouldn't, I did, I've never really known any other work culture apart from uh, that. Like I worked in Dublin for two years, one a full year on my own doing grad life. And then the second in a tiny team of seven, I'm pretty much working on my own again. And then I went to London and I worked on my own. <laughs> so like I've either worked in Sydney or pretty much on my own. Like I, I have found that with Irish people, they kind of beat around the bush a lot more, which I don't like. I prefer the Aussie direct talking thing. But yeah. I wouldn't, I, I actually, while I might know Aussie working culture, I don't really know any others, if I'm perfectly honest. Why, what have you noticed? Yeah, like I would, I had obviously exposure to both. Uh, so Irish beforehand, Australian, and then back to back to Irish now. So I was with Pfizer initially, and then I was with Coca Cola following that. And obviously, they're chalking cheese, chalking cheese in terms of what they do, but they're about on manufacturing side. So Pfizer were making oncology drugs um, in Melbourne, and then Coke were making alcoholic and non-alcoholic stuff. So in that sense, like they're similar because they had manufacturing kind of types of people around uh they're massive multinationals american multinationals so there is that kind of overarching feeling that there's you know um that that that, that kind of it, it, that kind of corporation involved but obviously there's australian feet in the street uh in both so pfizer primarily like was amazing to work for i think the culture from the states really sank down to the very like the, the the grassroots of the place which i mean not in the most positive sense like they're a brilliant company to work for uh and i love this so it was extremely positive place to work they're all very hard-working people and i probably would say that about pharma and biopharma as a whole the caliber of individual is just so high and because you're impacting on humans in such a, a massive way at the end of the day people really feel that and they take such pride in their work and i really felt that uh, in Pfizer massively um, and now in Trevere as well uh, it's it's a really positive place to work and people are happy put in the long hours and not complain because they know at the end of the day it is adding value you know even state me in HR like I'm not directly interacting with a patient but you know through my work I am and I, I definitely take uh, solace in that and it allows me to really give my all and I think um, that attitude and approach is is clear across these industry this industry and especially in Pfizer it was great um I have two comments, two comments on working culture one uh I definitely carry the Aussie kind of bank style with me so I, I love as I say being direct and when a half hour meeting ends after 20 minutes like I love that stuff and everyone yeah. be really clear and honest and then another is and this guy was an exception to be fair but just to show people what it can be like, and if they're far away from this to maybe appreciate it, that I remember giving a trader work on a, on a big email thread with loads of other people. I was like, hi, this is your, this is the data you asked for. And he replied all just saying, Mark, this is pure shit. <laughs> and, 
like that's pretty unique and so that's kind of how I was professionally raised I would say and so yeah that's I find uh, yeah sorry the other thing was then the biggest thing I've noticed on work cultures is big companies versus small and I much prefer small there's so much less structure less bs politics people having different ulterior motives on when they're doing stuff uh and just people working towards a common goal a simple goal i really like that so i'll never ever work in a big company yeah i i I couldn't agree more true right now in europe is 15 people uh, Mm -hmm. and i'm absolutely loving it yeah and it's it does like a huge push from god life is that it's so much more prestigious to have a big name on your thing but so many people enjoy working in small companies more um yeah if you have to be open to the fact that you might be one of them and this is coming from a guy who was driven purely by prestige at the age of like 22 so you kind of have to be open to the fact that you might be better suited to it yeah bro. that actually kind of leads me on to a question i wanted to ask you so in terms of success and you know what it looks like to you right now versus what it looks like to you you know when you were leaving congress in ucd how, how has that evolved over time and if at all Ah, God, enormously. And it comes because of both professional development or progress or something, or maybe just experience, and then definitely personal development. So for me in college, we know we say 22 or 21 in final year for most of it. um, Like alpha was always true north. And so if you're the big dog, if you're you're the best title, all that sort of jazz, um, anything associated with being alpha was true north for me. And then you walk into an investment bank full of alpha characters and you realize that, A, half of them, are, I'll just put it this way, those guys were making enormous amounts of money, which I was largely driven by. And even despite the amount of money they made, I, I'd said to myself, I would hate to be anything like the, these people when I'm their age. And so I was just like, God damn, this alpha thing was way off uh, what, it should, what True North should be. And that's well, what, what, was this, what was it about them that you're like... You know, uh, like, like, I, I don't want to get too into it, but like people not being husbands and fathers that they should be, like, that, and just like the fucking citizens they should be in terms of just how to de- decently treat people and stuff. Like, it was, there was, there'd be people crying at work and stuff, like out on the floor because of the way their boss has screamed at them and like stuff that just wasn't okay, pretty much. And yeah, that really yeah. put me off the whole alpha track. And then I started, it, I totally changed who I looked up to. So, I started looking up to uh, like older men that I knew. And I, I say men because that's what I'm probably going to grow into. Um, but they, like the, the, the type of men I kind of revered and, and aspired to be like totally changed. And they became, they went, it shifted much over towards happy, relaxed guys who weren't necessarily alpha at all. And might even be like nobodies in terms of, in, in the eyes of society but they'd done well for themselves and for their family and were just brilliant people to be around. And I think if you've got an extra couple of million quid and you're, you're never home or you're home and you're wrecked or just unhappy with your job and your life versus having a few less million quid and, um, you know, really happy, go-lucky kind of guy and, and the kind of dad that your kids just get loads of energy off. I think that it was that transition that I really kind of uh, started on. And I'm still on, but... I'd say I'm, yeah, I'm pretty far over the other direction now, as you can see with my recent, like that recent decision to leave management was a, probably the final nail in that coffin even maybe, where I just said, you know yeah. what, I'd actually much rather be somebody that like basically a nobody, but make more money and have more time and be more happy and relaxed and 
um, yeah, as we go into the next chapter, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I completely get you. Um, obviously, these kind of things, as you said, come with time and you, you figure it out as you go and you bump into things. You're like, oh, I, I'm into that. I'm not into this. And it's a, it's a process. And I think ever evolving and we're on it now and we'll be on it for the rest of our lives. And, you know, you can't have known those things when you're finishing finally your commerce, but be able to go back and give a bit of advice to yourself 10 years ago. Is there any, any knowledge or insights you'd like to impact? Uh, God, I've asked this question 60 odd times and I've never actually thought about my own answer. I think, like, I go back to when I used to go for pints with that guy Luke and I was like, why the hell wouldn't you want to be CEO? I wish I could somehow get it into that stupid kid's head that there was more to life than your societal ranking or any of that sort of stuff. Like, and, and that that's actually not a big part of it at all. That I think that would, I've become very very open-minded over the years and i definitely started off being exceptionally closed-minded and i would i wish i could have broken that down a little bit more and been more open-minded towards a different way of life i think not a way of life like but um yeah different true north and, and exploring what those alternative true norths might have been because now you know 29 now i probably realized at 28 yeah, last year I was kind of like, you know what, this true north thing, I'm, I'm, I'm off. I'm on the wrong track here. And I was probably on the right track for myself at that stage. I, I went as far on that track as I needed to to see clearly that there was another track. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I think that's a huge thing for people. Like I did, I did a talk to a bunch of MBAs there last week in Paris and just over Zoom. And like a bunch of MBAs doing finance, they all want to be investment bankers, like lambs to the slaughter. And half of them are going to leave that racket within two years. Like, I'd, I'd bet the house on it. But I did say to them, and I said that to them, I said, look, you're going to have to go and do your two years or whatever it might be. You kind of need, like, there's no point in saying to someone as you walk up a mountain and they're coming down, saying, what's it like up the top? And they say, oh, it's crap. It's not worth it. You shouldn't turn back and not climb. You need to see for yourself. You need to see from the top of that mountain where your next move is going to be. And so... Yeah, I think that's uh, that was pretty key to that whole thing. Uh, that's a really nice analogy. I've never heard that before. Uh, yeah, I just one. made it up there on Wednesday night. Did you? Creative <laughs> <laughs> yeah. genius. I uh, love it. And then, so that's kind of looking back and, and, and where you are right now. So me and you obviously in contact quite a lot, but say we have this conversation 12 months down the line, we're 2022 going into March, probably all vaccinated and back having points and all that really, really good stuff that we miss. Um, what would you like to tell me you've done this year or over the next 12 months or achieved or seen or uh, No, no, that's interesting. I think uh, I'm going to, yeah, like I'll try to make this not like sound spoofy, but I'm yep. kind of moving off being extremely goal-oriented. I'm definitely goal-oriented. Like I want to, there's a certain amount of money I want to make this year, which I won't say publicly, but like, I, that's a big thing for the year but like I know that if we hung out next year um, and we were sat in, in Sharky's having a pint that we'd be like I'd, you'd be like what you do and I'd say look do you know what I don't even know what I did but it was a fucking fun year that's like as long as I can look back and say I laughed a lot during the year and had great fun and grew as a person kind of thing and I don't even know what growing as a person means for this year yet like whatever that may mean but that kind of thing like that's that's it like I yeah there's no major goal or anything like that i'd like to see like grad life been doing really well since i got out of the way basically and 
the team have taken over. They've done great. So I want to see that keep going from strength to strength. Um, want to do a lot of deals in five channels, I say, and just keep enjoying that. Get really fit. Try to some look something like Ben Long in a year. That's it. If I can, if I can achieve those things, I'd be a happy camper, to be honest. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, you sound great, and sounds like all is on the right track for success there, and much, much, much more to come. Um, I hope so. Yeah, I've no doubt. I've no doubt. Well, listen, that's been a really, really enjoyable conversation, Maxwell. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed that, and so good to have you on as as the first guest and for my first podcast experience. And thanks a million for all that and all the honesty and sharing and advice. There's some great nuggets in there. Um, so I'll probably wrap up. Thank you for again. 